My name is uh, Mai Elliott. I've written under the pen name of uh, Zungun Mai Elliott. So for my first book, The Sacred Willow, Four Generations in the Life of a Vietnamese Family, I wrote under the name of Zungun Mai Elliott. And I did it because at that time there were very few Vietnamese American authors. Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. How has being Vietnamese uh, throughout the years, the identity of being Vietnamese changed for you? I, you know, I don't think it's changed very much if at all. Uh, I, I came from a very traditional conservative family in the North. And from a very young age, I was, it was, it, it was inculcated in me, you know, the Vietnamese history and culture. And uh, I absorb a lot of the culture just through my being with my family, living our life. And, uh, and also I uh, grew up in Vietnam. So I didn't leave Vietnam until I was 19 when my identity was already permanent firmly established. I went to French school, absorbed a lot of French culture, loved French culture in many, many ways. And then I got a scholarship and uh, went to Georgetown where I absorbed American culture. And then I married an American and I've been living in America since then. So I'm a mixture of many cultural um, influences, Vietnamese, French, American, but the Vietnamese influence, I would say, still remains like my basic influence. And uh, I don't have any identity crisis uh, uh, at all, um, mainly because I've, I'm so firmly established as a Vietnamese. Um, sometimes I feel, even in America, even now, I feel like I'm an, an outsider, but um, I, you know, I was an outsider in many situations, so in the French schools, even in Vietnam because of my family background. In some circles, I was an outsider. Uh, so uh, to me, being a writer and being on the outside looking in, uh, it doesn't bother me at all. Right. I, yeah, I just accept that as a fact of life. And I take the best out of each culture. And I think... Um, all that has made me what I am. But basically, you know, I'm Vietnamese and I accept that fact and I'm comfortable with it. Yeah, I, I think being uh, raised in one country from your country of origin up until you're 19, uh, but still kind of like floating in and out of the French culture and then getting completely immersed in the American culture at 19, but still retaining the roots of Vietnamese uh, since you were, you know, born and raised and up to 19 uh, gives you a very solid anchor of yeah. who you are. Exactly. Yeah. 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 What was life for you like growing up in, in Vietnam before you left to the U S yes, my, um, my life in Vietnam was uh, actually um, at times was kind of tumultuous because uh, my family was displaced by fighting several times. 
So, for example, uh, when uh, I was very low, so, uh, when the French uh, came back in 1946 after the World War II to take back Vietnam after Vietnam had declared independence, um, the French attacked Hanoi, so my family fled. So we were on the run for many, many months. Uh, we ran out of money, we ran out of food, but we lived on the kindness of relatives and strangers. And um, then in 1954, when uh, Vietnam was divided in two at the 17th parallel, my uh, family fled Hanoi because uh, my father was sure that the communists would come in and persecute us because he had worked in the French colonial administration. And then we moved to Saigon in 54. And at that time, South Vietnam was very unstable. So President Diem uh, was battling uh, religious uh, uh, groups, sects, and um, the Hoa Hao Kodai, but mainly the Bing Suyen, the criminal gang, but they were well armed. So during the fighting in Saigon between Siam and the Bing Suyen, we were caught in the middle and we fled during the, you know, as they were shooting each other, both sides were battling each other and we fled and our house burned down in the fighting. So uh, I'm not, I've known displacement and I've known what it's like to be a refugee, uh, to be on the run and to really have to live on the kindness of others. And uh, then, of course, my family fled again in 75. So um, we've led a rather uh, <laughs> uh, tumultuous life, yes. Now, when you got to uh, Saigon in uh, uh, 54, uh, you were of age. You were able to think, right? You were in your teenage years was, already, right? Yeah, I was 13. And, uh, you know... Uh, <laughs> The history was complicated because when the French were in Vietnam, they tried to a policy of divide and rule. So um, Vietnam was divided, not physically, but administratively, Vietnam was divided. So the north and central parts of Vietnam were protectorates, but the south, Cochin China, was a colony of France. So there was a division between Vietnamese. And um, when we uh, fled to Saigon, we were refugees and we were not accepted at all. A lot of people in Saigon were hostile. Um, those who were sympathetic to the Viet Minh who had won and gotten half of Vietnam uh, were upset with us because they said, well, you know, we're finally independent we threw out the French, why did you flee? And those, the others which just didn't want us there because, you know, they said we were going to steal their jobs and um, steal their rice. And, and we were different. We spoke, you know, a different dialect, if you will. Uh, we behaved differently. They call it Bucky, <laughs> where they call themselves good, good year. So we were not accepted at all, even my first, I remember my first day in school was very tense because we were viewed as, uh, you know, like interlopers, carpetbaggers, and uh, pupils were very hostile to us. 
that you know eventually we were accepted um, and I was accepted in school I made friends and did well in school but you know we've known we've known um, rejection we've known um, discrimination even though it's internal in, in the country which is yeah, it's, interesting it's yeah, so it's crazy to to hear that a real life example of this is going on many decades before you know uh you get to the united states and you witness you know all the infighting here it's a problem that basically never goes away as we are human beings right yeah if you have you're different you know it, it's and you perceived as different it takes time to kind of get integrated to be accepted um the the that, that was the case, yeah. You, you know, I've, um, I've kind of played with this idea, you know, of colonialism and um, how detrimental it is um, for the people who are being colonized and how evil it, it, the movements were to, to, to just go in and take the resources of people and French going into Vietnam and all of these you know, the British going into India. But at the end of the day, um, there were some good things that came from it, some good things. And, um, you know, when you look back sometimes um, in history, and, and I'm coming from it with a very open mind, just sort of like talking about like the good, good and the bad that comes from it. But from your perspective, because you've lived through a lot of these changes, can we say there's a way to do it and here's the right way to do it? Is there a right way or is there no way we should never go into other people's country and, and do that? I don't think that's the right way to do it. You should never go into another country and take it over and tell, you know, tell the native people what to do and kind of lord over them and hold all the power and exploit their labor and, and take the resources to enrich your own country. I don't think that's something that should ever be attempted again. First of all, because it might work in the short term, but not in the long term, because no country likes to be you know, colonized, exploited, and no native people want foreigners to come in and despise them and treat them badly and so on. But on the other hand, in Vietnam, the French did all that, but on the other hand, um, they did uh, modernize Vietnam. They improved a lot of things, sanitation, hygiene, uh, healthcare. They modernized Vietnam, built roads, bridges, uh, uh, ports and airports and so on. Uh, established beautiful buildings and so on. And uh, their culture had um, a lot of good things going for it. Their education was very good. And uh, we absorbed a lot of good French cultural influences, but uh, at the end of the day, it was still a colonial regime. And like I said in my book, you know, if the French had just come in and modernized Vietnam and treated us fairly, share power, and then eventually hand back the country independence and power back to the Vietnamese, the, Viet the Vietnamese would never have fought them for nine years to kick them out. So, but, you know, despite all that, I think at the end of the day, it's still 
you know, a horrible system. And uh, it's shown over and over again, it doesn't work. And like I said, a, a powerful country can come in and over, overcome, overwhelm the, the natives or the people who live there, but eventually they can't stay. If the people don't accept them, they can't stay. And we've seen that in many countries. I, I asked this question in a very clumsy way, and it's sort of deliberate because the root of our, not you, but my sort of generation, I feel like sometimes the root of our insecurity is because our parents, my parents, my elders put so much emphasis on the beauty of what the French brought and the beauty of what American powers brought. And it's sort of like this weird worship culture of the these European and um, Western culture that makes somebody like me feel very displaced in American society. And yeah. I'm dealing with this weird kind of like uh, figuring out, wait, what a minute, they brought such uh, thing, right? Like all these modern ways of thinking, and you should be grateful that Catholicism was brought to Vietnam and, and, and solidified. But on the other hand, I'm like, no, it, this was not a good thing. So I want to hear it from somebody who's, you know, uh, who's lived through what and how bad it was for, for, and, and now what I'm, what I'm realizing as I'm doing more of these podcasts is it's a nuanced conversation that we have to like kind of break down and say, okay, here's where they did modernize and here's where they brought culture and here's where, you know, they should have left. Um, and, and those things need to be discussed, but in, in, I feel like in the elders, uh, ideas, it, it kind of like, we forget sometimes that the Vietnamese identity or somebody like me, uh, have always been like, I feel so minimized. My Vietnamese culture feels so minimized because of this sort of like, I have aunts who are like, uh, they think that they're French. They think because they were tall and uh, light-skinned and there's just so much euro wor worship and and american centric ways of thinking that um we completely ignore the fact that these were very bad things that happened to a country like vietnam yeah well like i said it was not totally bad the french uh, colonial period um so um I think in terms of the American and French cultural influence, uh, um, there are many good things and that's why people, um, basically Western civilization has spread throughout the world for many reasons, but in some ways it is superior and in some ways it's not. So I think that perhaps the best thing to do is to recognize the good and the bad and just adopt the good and not the bad, but that's easier said than done yeah. because usually people mostly embrace the bad <laughs> more than the good. But I don't think that either the French culture or American culture is inherently totally bad. I think all cultures have good aspects and bad aspects and and it is up to us to identify what it is that we want to adopt and follow, what it is that we don't want to 
the, we want to reject. Um, so if your family admired the French, uh, you know, there are reasons why they do. And if they're Catholics, and then, of course, are they Catholic? Yes, they are. Uh, well, that's, that's the reason, because the Catholicism in Vietnam is very um, strong, very deep-rooted, and uh, faith is, is, very, is very strong. Um, in many ways, it's almost like medieval, because people accept it, the faithful accept it without questioning, I think. From, from the few times I interact with very ardent Catholics in Vietnam, you know, the people from the northern refugees, the refugees from North Vietnam who fled to the south, a lot of them were Catholics. They couldn't accept living under communism. So they, and they hated it because, so they, they fled. And I mean, it's like, what a perfect system when you have a French Catholic or, you know, this French Catholic way of looking at it because it's perfect because it's hierarchical and it, and it's impossible to leave the, the mentality of the Vietnamese because it's like, uh, you can't fight back and it's spiritual and it's religious and it's just so organized. And so it's like the perfect storm to fit inside the 54, uh, buck, uh, 54 culture, because you bring a million people down and mm. it's unshakable that structure uh, you yeah. have you know it, it's it's perplexing that you know it's hard to think beyond it and you know a lot of us kids come from these military backgrounds uh our fathers or mothers or a uh, part of that culture you know and then you mm. add in the military culture so there's so many of us that are questioning why are why is our culture the way it is? And then we have to do some deep digging and diving into why mm. things are the way they are. And it's confusing. Sometimes it's so confusing. And this morning yes. I was just reading on social media, this girl, she's probably in her you know, teens or twenties complaining about um, not being able to break free from what her parents want her to do. In 2022, we have an 18 year old girl complaining on subtle Viet traits about what yeah. to do. And I'm like, she's 18 and her parents are probably my age. Mm -hmm. But that comes from this hierarchical, mm -hmm. I think, you know, it's just my theory yeah. that it's coming down from this waterfall of, 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 of hierarchical thinking and patriarchal French uh, Catholicism and it's unshakable. Yeah. Well, it, it's a, if you're a Vietnamese Catholic, from the north, you combine, like you said, many hierarchies. You know, the Vietnamese society, traditional society, is extremely patriarchal, very hierarchical. And then the Catholic Church is the same way. And then, like you said, you're from a military background, so you have three hierarchies <laughs> combined. So uh, that that stuff. You, but uh, I think that. Asians uh, in general, I don't think it's just Vietnamese, the parental expectations are very high and they usually center around getting a good education, getting a good degree, get a good job, make a lot of money. So a lot of, you know, like kids who want to be musicians, they have to fight their parents' right. expectations who want them to be doctors or lawyers or, you know, so it, 
we've encountered these uh, examples of not just Vietnamese, but Asians in general, where you know the parents want them to follow one path, and um, they want to do something else, and and there's conflict. Um, uh, I know that, like in the case of my niece, her mother was adamant that she should become a doctor, but she's wanted to be a computer scientist, and there was a, a big struggle. But she she was, uh, you know, determined not not to be a doctor. She didn't feel the calling, so she went into computer studies at Stanford, and she's done very well. I mean, <laughs> mm -hmm. so. You know, I guess you just have to follow your, yeah. um, your heart, heart, but it's hard because you're young. You yourself don't know. Yeah, and you're you're dependent on your parents for financial backing and support and emotional. This whole uh, support system is is based on you know you do it my way and I will provide you with <laughs> X Y and Z. Now yeah. that that brings me to my uh, question with you is uh, you left home at 19 and you fell in love and you went back to Vietnam and got married to an American. Like, how did your mom and dad back in the 60s deal with that? How did you deal with it? Well, for me, you know, being 19 and in love, uh, I knew what I wanted to do. Uh, but um, my parents were aghast. You know, my, my family, like I said earlier, was very traditional, extremely conservative. So the idea that that one of their daughters would marry a foreigner was, uh, you know, was didn't go down well. Yeah. And remember the history of Vietnam. Vietnam was colonized so many times, first yeah. by the Chinese and then the French, and then the Americans came in. So women who consorted with foreign men was always frowned upon, uh, mainly because those who did were mainly people so we say ill repute right so in my case um, my decision to marry dave uh, upset my parents a lot very greatly uh, first because they thought uh, it would bring shame on them and then the entire clan was against it because they said that it would um, bring shame on the whole clan and uh, so um, it was a very tough decision for me, but I stuck with it. And eventually they came around because when they finally met Dave, my husband, um, they realized that he was not the, you know, the, 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 ling, <laughs> the, the soldier. Soldier boy, yeah. Soldier boy, but somebody who was educated, came from a prominent family. And in Vietnam, in our tradition, Family background counted very heavily. Um, when two children get married, you check the family backgrounds more. You know, what is the saying in Vietnamese? Sem tong. What is it? Sem. Lấy chồng sem. Sem quen. Cái gì sem giống cái gì sem tong? Yes. So yes, the background, the family background is is everything. Yeah. So another saying in my family background is Mondang Ho Roy means that two families of equal standing. So uh, when they realized that Dave, you know, he was the son of a Harvard professor, you know, so on, 
they realized that his family background was was uh, uh, solid. Solid. So yeah. they kind of came around. Yeah. How long did that take? Uh, not long, from the time I told him to the time they met Dave. It was mm. like a couple months. Oh, because okay. He was he was drafted. You know, remember there was a draft in the U.S. at the time during the Vietnam War. He was drafted out of grad grad school and uh, sent to Vietnam. So, and before he went to Vietnam, he uh, was sent to uh, the Defense uh, Language Institute in Monterey to study a foreign language. And he applied to study Portuguese because he was uh, he was getting a PhD. And his areas of study was uh, um, Latin America, Brazil. And so he wanted to study, you can brush up on his Portuguese. So he applied to learn Portuguese, but they chose him and said, oh no, you're going to study Vietnamese. So they put him in a Vietnamese class. And then after he was done, they sent him to Vietnam. But after he got to Vietnam, he applied to marry me. So, um, they, um, he uh, never, so they assigned him to, uh, actually he was sent to Vietnam to monitor radio communication. Wow. But of the communists, but because, and he had a security clearance for that. But since he applied to marry me, he was stripped of his clearance and they didn't use his language training at the time. They put him in charge of, watching Vietnamese workers paint his barracks. So <laughs> it's just because he lost his clearance. Wow. So, yeah. So to so that's why he spoke Vietnamese. And so when he came to visit my family, my parents, he could speak Vietnamese. And so they were, you know, floored. They were surprised. And because he could communicate with them, they became comfortable. Yeah but also so you, mainly his family background right. and the fact that he was educated, he was going to get a PhD and Vietnamese love, you know, PhDs. advanced degrees and, and he was going to be a college professor. So yeah, turned out well. Yeah. So did the, the clan come around? Well, it's um, first. Uh, so my clan was uh, the head of the clan was a, a lady very stern, very traditional, very conservative. So she was the daughter-in-law of the last viceroy of North Vietnam. So she was very prominent. And she was against it, my marriage, because she said it would bring shame on the clan. And so she boycotted, boycotted our wedding. And everybody in the clan said, oh my gosh, the matriarch said, you know, boycotted the wedding, so we shouldn't go. But then in the end, everybody was so curious about this American uh, groom, they all came except <laughs> for the matriarch. So my <laughs> wedding reception was a success because they came, all came and Dave could speak Vietnamese. So my father had coached him on what to say. Mm -hmm. So when my husband got up and thanked everybody in Vietnamese, they all, Flooded, yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was great. And did the matriarch ever come around? Uh, no, I uh, I think in the end, yes, because every time, so whenever I left for 
US, I had to make the round, say goodbye to all my relatives, and the matriarch was the first one I had to visit. So, um, so I, uh, or whenever I came back, the same thing would happen. I had to pay my respect to everybody. So um, in the end, when I came to say goodbye to her, she accepted me. Yeah, that's beautiful, mm-hmm. and it's beautiful, but it's strange in its own way, right? I mean, it, it, there's multiple things that are strange about the story of the the matriarch is strange because it's such a weird time where we I can't even imagine that uh, you know how mm-hmm. that how that kind of reality exists, and then losing your security clearance because you married a, a, a Vietnamese woman. Yeah. That today would not fly in the U.S. government. I, there'd be lawsuits if that happens. <laughs> it was a different time. Right? <laughs> yeah. Not only that, we had to run through the gamut. You know, Dave had to fly in the army. We had to have approval from American authorities. I had to get approval from the Vietnamese authorities. And, and uh, so... My husband was not happy. He said the government had nothing to do with my personal decision. But there it was. He had to follow regulations. The journey that you took um, to Georgetown, you studied foreign service. And can you tell me about that? Because I am so fascinated by that field of study. And what what do you learn about when you major in something like that? Yeah, well, it, it was also kind of strange because when I got my scholarship, U.S. scholarship to go to Georgetown, um, you know, I applied to study um, international relations because I wanted to be a diplomat. Of course, I envisioned living in Washington, London, Paris, Rome. You know, I didn't think of all the other countries where I could be assigned as a diplomat. But, uh, and I thought, gee, the Americans would never allow me to do this. They probably wanted me to be, become an engineer, learn something practical so I could help develop Vietnam. But to my utter surprise, they let me go to Georgetown and study at the School of Foreign Service. I had no idea what it meant, really. Uh, uh, I took a lot of courses and uh, uh, studied international law, US foreign policy. Um, but I also studied the basic courses, that, the requirements, you know, money and banking, you know, history courses, uh, Western civilization. You know, it's it's a very broad liberal arts education, right? So um, that was basically what I got. But I think what I learned mainly uh, was uh, the critical thinking, analytical thinking that I never learned in Vietnam because in Vietnam, um, the tradition was rote learning and, uh, you know, from... T- a long time ago, everybody learned Confucianism, Confucian, the Analects, by heart. Uh, um, and then the French came, and we continued to apply this method of, of learning. So when I, I never learned critical thinking, I learned essay writing well. So I think that later on helped my writing, because when I was in French school, we had to write a lot of essays. And... Uh, um, so when I came to the U.S., to Georgetown, it was a very alien environment. I was totally lost. First of all, my English was very poor. Um, to read my assignments, I had to stop every few words and use a French-English dictionary. 
So it, I was very slow. I didn't do well at first. And I remember studying Shakespeare plays were like torture. Um, <laughs> but um, um, I, uh, you know, I adapted and uh, I, I did well, fairly well. I was an, a straight A student, but I did fairly well. And, uh, and I think that uh, now if I ask you what you learn in college, um, do you remember any courses, any contents of your courses? You probably say no. But what you take away is this general education, this liberal arts education, that, and especially critical thinking. thinking. Yeah, I think that's the purpose of a, a higher education, at least at the, the, uh, under, uh, at the um, undergrad level. Yeah, at bachelor level anyway. So I think that's what my takeaway is for my education is this, this ability to think for myself and you know, to take in the facts and try to make sense of them uh, and make something coherent out of all this. And uh, I think that's, that's the key to American liberal arts education. I think it's something that a lot of countries try to emulate because American... America is such a creative country. And uh, I remember there was a time when like Singapore was trying to emulate the US, you know, they were asking, why is it that Americans were so creative, inventing, you know, a lot of new things. And, and so I think that's, that's a strong point of a liberal arts education in America. I had silly romantic notions of foreign service uh, major at Georgetown. It's like, do you study, you know, uh, military rankings, how to fold napkins, you know, uh, (laughs) (laughs) silly things, right? Like, uh, you know, government uh, hierarchies and, you know, uh, but I I got none of that from you right now. Um, Yeah. In my mind, when I was, you know, reading about your life, I'm, like, oh my God, in the 60s, studying foreign service, you know, you, you, you got to study where the, uh, the, the, the city halls were, how they do business and conduct business in Italy or, or France, but it sounds like none of it. <laughs> no, no. I think it's like with everything, you, if you get into the foreign service, kind of learn on the job, right? Mm-hmm. We study a lot about other countries like history of Russia, um, you know, um, uh, the United Nations law, international law, the U.S. General. foreign policy, but you know, it's just still a generalist. I think that's what it what it is. You, you college turns out generalist, and then you specialize later. I think. And you were called um, on by the Rand Corporation um, to do work for them uh, shortly after you left Georgetown, right? Well, uh, I graduated from Georgetown and I returned to Vietnam. And um, my husband and I got married and uh, uh, I was, uh, I had a variety of kind of jobs, nothing really meaningful. When I first came back, I got a job translating documents from uh, English into Vietnamese in a bank and then um, I was hired to do a radio broadcast for the Saigon radio. I, I read the, the news in English on the air. Again, nobody trained wow. me. They just threw me in and said, here, 
here's the news. You choose what you want to say, broadcast. So I picked out news items and grabbed them on the air without any training. And I stumble along and say, oh, excuse me. <laughs> how cool. <laughs> over again. But, you know, that was how it went. And anyway, so I was, uh, my husband was then in Vietnam and his boss was uh, a man who was also a graduate student and uh, who, been, who had been drafted. So they, they became great friends because, you know, basically they, graduates, they were graduate students. And the wife of this man, uh, Susan, was working for two professors, uh, John Donnell uh, of uh, Temple and uh, Joe Zasloff of Pittsburgh to do research in Vietnam. So Susan was working for them. So she said, well, they're looking for bilingual people, Vietnamese, who could do research for them. And uh, so I was hired uh, only basically, not because I studied at Georgetown and majored in international relations but because I could speak English right. and Vietnamese. So, so the project they were researching was something called the Viet Cong Motivation and Morale. And that had been commissioned by somebody in the Defense Department. There were people who claimed that it was McNamara and that M McNamara was curious about the Viet Cong because at the time the Viet Cong were to the Americans faceless enemies. You know, they didn't know who the Viet Cong were except that they were communists and they wanted to overthrow the Saigon government. Basically, they didn't know why people joined the Viet Cong. Why did they join the insurgency? Why did they fight so hard, even though the Americans were pounding them? And, uh, and if, they, they if they gave up, why did they give up? So basically trying to understand the insurgency. So these two professors, uh, the only way to find out the Viet Cong was to talk to the Viet Cong. And how did you find the Viet Cong? You find them in uh, the defection centers uh, where the, the Viet Cong defected were kept until they were released. Right. And then in prisons with uh, Viet Cong who had been captured and later on North Vietnamese who had been sent south to help the Viet Cong who were captured or defected. So the only way to find out was to talk to them. So uh, these two professors hired Vietnamese who were bilingual. And at that time, you know, actually there were very few Vietnamese who could speak English well. So many of the interviewers who were hired were bilingual, but French and Vietnamese. And since these professors spoke French well, it was not a problem. So anyway, I was hired mainly on the basis that I could speak Vietnamese and English. So my job was to go into the Chihoi Center, the defection centers and the jails and talk to defectors and prisoners. And, uh, you know, I, I, I said, well, I don't know what to do. I, what do I do? So they gave me, they had developed a questionnaire. So when you do research, you have to have a questionnaire so that you can have a basis for comparison, right? So they gave me a list of questions and said, just go in and ask. So that was what I, how I started. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. And it's purely coincidence because I wasn't looking for this job. Yeah. I was totally unqualified. And I got in because there were a few Vietnamese who could speak English. And my husband knew the wife of his boss who was working for Ren. So the roundabout, the two pure coincidence. I realize how much luck is involved in everybody's success. Or you make a left turn here because you met somebody's wife and yeah. So much of that happens and people just go with it. And when you started out in life, when you started to have this sort of understanding of like um, you're controlling your narrative because you apply to the U.S. and, you know, your your life changes. Um, did you have a direction on where you were going to go in life? No. No, at that time, my, my destiny was to be married as soon as possible. So um, my parents, uh, you know, had a lot of children, numerous, uh, four boys and eight girls. And their worry was to get us married, um, you know, before we got too old. In those days, marriages were arranged. And if a, a girl was considered too old, um, yeah, she wouldn't be ma- Nobody would want to marry her because no matchmaker would bring a man to meet her, right? So it, it was totally arranged. So your, your fate depended on what the matchmaker, who the matchmaker brought, and whether your parents liked the guy that the matchmaker brought. So uh, in my case, my destiny was really just to be married off. But I was determined not to let that happen because, uh, first of all, I've seen that arranged marriages didn't work because I've seen my older sisters, some of them, their marriages were not, you know, great. So um, I wanted to avoid that fate. And just so happened, I read in the paper, the announcement that the Americans were recruiting high school students to go to the US to study. But in order to do so, they had to apply and pass an exam. So I applied and I took an exam and my English was very poor because I had studied in French school and I studied English there um, because the choice was either English or 
Latin. And I thought, well, I'm going to study English because I was enamored of American culture, pop culture, through movies and music at the time. So I studied English. So I took this test. Now I realized that it was an SAT because there were a lot of multiple choices and uh, true and false. And, uh, but somehow I managed not only to pass, but to pass with, with flying colors because I was one of 15 students in all of Vietnam who were chosen to go to the US with a scholarship. So talking about coincidence. Wow. Right? That was another coincidence. If I hadn't seen that article, it wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Because my parents just wanted to marry me off. The last thing they wanted to do is for me to go to a foreign country, you know, and marry, probably marry a foreigner, which they were against. So um, that's how I ended up at Georgetown. In your years of being away and married off to an American and, you know, living basically outside of your family, when you look back into like your family, like the sisters and brothers, like, were there any thoughts that were going on in your mind at the time? Like, whoa, that could have been me. Sure. Yeah. 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 Like uh, there were matchmakers who were bringing um, people to meet me, uh, to not only to meet me, just to check me out. You know, as we call it, Sema, check out the girl. And so they were bringing you know, young man to my house. And so I, that really alarmed me. You know, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to be married off by my sisters as soon as I finished high school. So uh, I, um, so it was coincidence that I got away. You know, I, I found a scholarship. My parents didn't want me to go, but uh, uh, they were progressive enough to, to, to let me go. Even though they had a lot of misgivings and fears about what would happen next. But that changed my life and meeting my husband changed my life and going back to Vietnam and getting the job at RAND changed my life. Because, you know, it's just, like you said, the, the things that happen that you don't plan that really kind of changed the course of, yeah. of your life. Yeah. And then April 30, mm -hmm. I can't imagine, uh, what you were feeling because you're kind of like an, an outsider at this point, right? You probably yeah. holding a different passport, yeah. your, your rights and your, your, your access changes. What was going on in your mind as you are witnessing all of this happening? Oh, well, I did. I went back to Vietnam in 1973. That was the last time I was there before the end of the war. And at that time, the Saigon government seemed very strong. It, it had like a million men under arms in different, you know, uh, branches of the armed forces. Uh, it had received $2 billion worth of military equipment from the, from the United States. Uh, the United States continued to help it with aid and, um, you know, and um, armament supplies. So I thought, hmm, you're pretty, we're pretty strong. The communists might take over eventually, but not anytime soon. So um, uh, I thought it was 
if the communists took over, it would be a long kind of process, uh, but not a sudden takeover. So anyway, I left feeling pretty confident. And so in 75, we were living in Ithaca. My husband was getting his uh, doctorate at Cornell uh, when it happened. And uh, when the communist, what they call the spring offensive, it took place in, uh, starting in March of 75. I couldn't believe it because the provinces, the, the places fell so quickly, you know, and then suddenly and it's like a domino falling very fast. And then there was talk of uh, that South Vietnam would be truncated and that the South Vietnamese government would hold on to the Mekong Delta. And, uh, and then suddenly the communists were within sight of Saigon. So uh, I watch all this with disbelief and kind of you know, incredul incredulity because I thought, oh my gosh, how could this happen so quickly? And, uh, and so, yeah, it was a complete shock. It's fascinating to hear from your point of view um, as a kid who's grown up entirely for, you know, um, listening from my parents' point of view and their friends, you know, people who really didn't speak English, you know, coming to the United States and, you know, retelling it from their harrowing perspective. And then to have a Vietnamese person, you know, that is actually older than my parents speaking in English, telling me um, your recounting of the, of, of your tracking uh, the developments um, from the United States, from Ithaca. It's very uh, interesting. Yeah, of course, my family went through what your family did at the end in April 75. They too fled and they were plucked by helicopters at the very last moment, just before the communists, the tanks, you know, came in and took Saigon. Yeah. So they went through what your family did, you know, they were then some yet waiting to be evacuated, you know, rockets were exploding. So yeah, was did, they, did they ever call you ahead of time, like the week before or you know, so well, no, we were in Ithaca. And remember at the time, communication was not like it is now. Um, you know, recently, the fall of Kabul, Kabul I watched some Af Afghans being extricated with cell phone. You know, somebody outside, a Marine would text somebody in the crowd and said, where are you? <laughs> and he would send a picture and say, this is what I'm wearing. This is what my family look like. And, you know, the Marines could go in and find them and take them out. So remember, it wasn't like that. So I, I couldn't even call them. Uh, they couldn't call me. They, 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 only my older brother had a phone. Remember, you, it's very hard to imagine, but phone, having a phone in Saigon was very rare. So I tried to, uh, um, I couldn't get in touch with them, but uh, somebody, uh, a relative in Washington told me that he had heard that if, if I could send a cable to Saigon asking my family to call me, then I could communicate with them. So I thought, oh, okay. And so I sent a cable thinking, okay, nothing is going to happen. But the cable went through 
So my oldest brother went to the central post office to call me. Remember at the time, the only way to make overseas calls was to go and stand in line at the post office and get in this booth and call. And so one night the phone rang. I was asleep in, in Ithaca. And I heard my brother, so statics were extremely bad. And it's not like talking on WhatsApp right now. So he he called me and and he had very little time to talk to me. So I said, are you planning on staying or leaving? He said, we want to leave, all of us. And uh, I said, well, I see what I can do. So now at that time, there was no evacuation. The only way you could leave was on commercial flights, um, if you could get tickets, right? So that's all we could say. The line went dead. And so I thought, I counted 40 people. And my husband was a graduate student, and I was working in the library earning $2.75 an hour. I thought, 40 people, how am I going to get them out? Wow. By commercial flights. So I called my mother-in-law and she said, uh, don't worry about it, we'll help you. And I said, what am I going to do with 40 people when they came? She said, at that time, my father-in-law had retired from Harvard where he was teaching and bought a farm in Virginia. And so my mother-in-law said, don't worry, we'll help you get them out. And when they came, they they can come and stay with us. We have room on the farm. So I, I said, well, okay, of course, events happen very fast. You know, commercial flights stop. So I think only there were Air France was still the only one that operated, but even their flights were, I don't know, I don't know how many flights they had, one or two. So, so it was impossible to get them out by commercial airplanes. So then, I heard about the evacuation. And uh, in those days, you could not just come in the US, you know, to seek asylum. But the Defense Department had issued something, what was it they call? Some kind of protocol that allowed Vietnamese refugees to come, uh, give them permission to come. So, I thought, well, I'm married to an American. Maybe I could get them in. Um, so I drove to Buffalo, the immigration naturalization office in where, near where I live. The only place was Buffalo. So I drove with a group of Vietnamese students who were also trying to get their families. Wow. So we drove to Buffalo and I filled out all the paperwork. And it took me the longest because I had 40 people. Yeah, to f- I had to fill out paperwork for 40 people. And a lot of the names were my newly born nephews and nieces, they were babies. I, I didn't know their names. So I would stay like little baby girl or little baby boy wow. <laughs> in my application. So I sent all that in, not knowing if anything would happen. And so Saigon collapsed. And so I thought, well, they were stuck. But then one night the phone rang and it was my, one of my brothers. They had landed in Camp Pendleton in California. They said, we're here. 
It was the first time I knew they had made it. But uh, so. All the, of them the, made it? All of them made it except for those who decided to stay. So um, the Be reason I found of your, later, Because of your paperwork, they all made it? Yes. Isn't that amazing? And this is what happened. I, I later found out that my application, um, I had also written to the State Department, you know, just like I, I tried to do everything I could. So I wrote to the State Department as well as applying through the Justice Department. Uh, I just wrote to the State Department. And uh, for some reason, Henry Kissinger found out about it. Now, Henry Kissinger was my father-in-law's, one of my father-in-law's closest students at Harvard. So he, he wrote his dissertation under my father-in-law. And uh, he was like, like a disciple of my father-in-law. And my father-in-law was instrumental in helping him start his career. So somehow Henry Kissinger knew about this and he sent a cable or had his office sent a cable to the American embassy under his name saying, get all these people out, all the names, including names like baby girl, baby boy. And so I had listed my brother's phone number. Two of my brothers had, had phones, so I listed their phone numbers. And one night, somebody in the embassy, American embassy, called my brother, who is now in Canada, called him and said, tomorrow at 2 p.m., gather at this villa in downtown Saigon. We'll bus you to the airport and get you out. So then my brother had to rush around telling everybody, you know, get to this place tomorrow. So, so in the rush, um, some decided not to go, or some were not in Saigon because they were in the army and stationed somewhere else. So anybody who could or wanted to gather at this villa, a bus came and took them to the airport. And uh, so they waited and waited all night. And you know, in the morning, rockets started to fall, exploding. And then they thought, well, you know, no way they were going to get out. But the Americans started bringing in helicopters and they were picked up and uh, flown to the USS Hancock in the South China Seas. And from there, they went to Guam and then to Pendleton. But again, pure coincidence that Henry Kissinger found out about this, you know. If he hadn't found out, I don't think they would have gotten out because the, my application, I don't think ever got approved at the State Department, at the Justice Department. God, what a story. Yeah, I still have a cable with wow. under the name of Henry Kissinger. Yeah, so it just happened that, you know, he was my father-in-law student and was very loyal to my father-in-law. And he had met Dave, you know, my husband. And he knew about me. Maybe he knew Dave had married a Vietnamese. So all that helped. Yeah. Did you know the story of Henry Kissinger before that that happened? Uh, the connection with your father-in-law? Oh, yeah. 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 But I didn't send my letter to Henry Kissinger. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I just sent State it to Department. the State Department. Yeah. Amazing story. Yeah. Now, <laughs> you, 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 inside of your family, you must get sort of some preferential treatment because of that credit to the, you know, bringing everybody out. I mean, 
or you know is it something that because i can imagine uh, the vietnamese tradition like loyalty weighing so heavy that uh, is that something that you feel uh, in your family in the most humblest way to answer that i i i'm very curious about that sort of uh yeah. lifelong i owe you this for doing that for our family well yeah first of all it was family love and family obligation uh and loyalty too and uh, so yeah everybody in my family uh, who got out because of me now other people got out on their own because uh one of my brothers who was working for the American, um, uh, what is it, Dow Def- Defense Attaché Office or something like that. Um, so he managed to get some, his family, uh, plus you know, some other um, nephews and nieces that he could get out at the time. So his plan when he, after he flew out with the kids, was to come back and get the rest of the family, but of course you couldn't come back. So the rest I got out, and then I had a sister who was working for Chase Bank, and Chase Bank got her and her family out, except for a son who decided to stay. So I didn't get everybody out, but the ones that I got out, yeah, they were grateful. They're still grateful. And uh, of course they're grateful to the my hu- husband as well because of yeah. my husband's connection with Henry Kissinger, who, who really got them out. So, um, yeah. So in the end, uh, at the beginning, nobody liked the idea of me marrying Dave, but in yeah. the end, <laughs> Dave and his family connection who got us, got them out. The the yeah. cycles of irony and uh, how things turn out in, in a human being's life is... You, you have no uh, choice but to keep an open mind to all of the things that are happening. And that's the, the, the lesson about living and the more stories we hear. It's like you have to drop all the prejudice that you have going into matters of, 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 of humanity. Mm, exactly. Yeah, of course, and I'm grateful to my mother-in-law. If she hadn't said, I get them out and they can come live with me. I might not have the gumption to do it, yeah. you know, because how how was how was I going to support forty people when you know my husband was still in graduate school? But uh, she, I wanted to do it very badly, and she was the she was kind of the uh, reason that that kind of took me over the hump. Yeah, fortunately, she never had to feed forty people. But she was prepared to do it. She said, oh, you know, we can grow food on the farm. We'll just plant more potatoes, you know. Wow. So she was a wonderful person. Yeah. Amazing. Just amazing yeah. story. If your father and grandfather and great-grandfather uh, had voices today and they saw the development of, of Vietnam and um, and all the changes, what do you think all these men... And perhaps women would, would what, what would their comment be? How do you think they would feel about where Amer- uh, Vietnam has landed today in history? Of course, I think they would be um, stunned by the changes because, uh, you know, they, 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 they couldn't anticipate how Vietnam could change, you know, how the modern world uh, 
could bring the changes. Uh, first of all, that the world would be so modernized. And uh, so I think uh, they would be stunned and uh, the, they probably would be unhappy because a lot of the things they believed in, the institutions they were loyal to, the monarchy, uh, you know, the, um, the Confucianism, the, the way of life dictated by Confucian rituals and relationships, uh, the rigorous relationships between uh, parents and children, uh, you know, the absolute power the parents had over children, um, all that is gone. I think they probably would be very uh, lost and probably unhappy uh, because they thought that world was wonderful. They thought that social system hierarchy was great. And of course they wanted to maintain it. And even when the French came, they fought hard because they didn't want to give up that culture, that way of life. And they were against changes. Um, of course, they eventually came to embrace changes because they realized that modern, modernization was the only way to save Vietnam from French domination because they could see how Japan modernized and became a powerful country. And they thought Vietnam, reluctantly, they thought Vietnam should follow that route. But at the beginning, no, they were very adamant about against any changes. Uh, so I think they would be very aghast you know, lost if they had to come back now. And um, even we, you know, now we kind of, sometimes we're surprised by the pace of change ourselves because things are changing very fast, especially with technology. Folks my age and, you know, uh, I would say a lot of the kids are, you know, in their 30s and 20s are, are running the, the tech scene and the banking mm -hmm. and, Smart young minds are have taken over the modernization of, of Vietnam, and it's no longer the the country that yeah. these older folks think. And um, yeah, so I think that's that's a, that's the case because the older people left with this image of Vietnam, which became ossified because they never gone back to see the changes. So in their mind, Vietnam was what it was, but like you said, it's changed a lot, and. Uh, I've seen statistics that said that um, like 75% of the Vietnamese now in Vietnam were born after the war or soon after uh, or, or soon before it ended. So to them, the Vietnam War, like for you, is just something that, something that happened in the past in history. They don't have any memory of it. And um, so um, they're very open, I think. Yes. And, Somebody did a opinion survey and found that 80% of the Vietnamese people admire the United States, think it's the best country in the world. And a lot of Vietnamese who have money send their children here to study. You'd be amazed how many Vietnamese students are here, you know, not like as numerous as the Chinese, but you know, how many, 60,000 or maybe more. And, uh, you know, they, they, when I go back to Vietnam, I'm surprised because so many people speak English. They admire the United States greatly. Uh, you know, they use the modern technology. Um, they um, admire American culture, pop culture, or especially Korean pop 
pop culture. Yeah. So, like you said, it's a very different country. Yeah. Can Can you imagine the the young kids that are sent uh, in the last five years to the United States to go to college? The culture shock that they feel once they get here with the yeah. elders. I yeah. I wonder if they get briefed. Uh, by their families or institutions before they leave to um, to understand that there's like this vestige of uh, of, of of war that's a big chunk of of, of you know um, yeah. our culture here in Vietnamese American society. But what if they get briefed like, hey, this is what you have to kind of be careful. You know, like there's yeah. these. I think I think they're careful. I think they know the hostility. Uh, you know, within the Vietnamese American community. And so, that's unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. But I think they're aware of it. Uh, were you like one of the first to be nominated, a Vietnamese uh, to be nominated for a Pulitzer? Probably. Yeah. 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 And Nguyen was the, Viet is the first one who won. Won it. Yes. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. So I just want to say about my book, The Sacred Will. The reason yes. I wrote that at the time, Americans knew very little about Vietnam. They knew it as a war, but they didn't know it as a country, like a saying. So my aim was to explain that Vietnam had a long history, culture, tradition, uh, just explain Vietnam in general to the American, the average American reader. But also my second, my secondary objective was to capture this history for the next generations of Vietnamese, uh, you know, in America, because I suspected that they didn't uh, know about all these periods, especially the period of the 19th century, early late 19th century when the French arrived, and what Vietnam was like, and how the French transformed it. Uh, why did the Vietnamese fight the French to get rid of them? Uh, what happened during the Cold War? Why was the uh, two blocks in Vietnam, the communists and the non-communists duking it out? And, uh, you know, it's just the transformation of Vietnam because of the war and the American involvement and uh, the consequences of the war on Vietnamese society, not just physically, but socially. And uh, I wanted to capture all that before generations uh, that lived through that period passed. Of course, for the earlier period, I had to remind, rely on the memories of my father and his uncles and aunts and so on. Uh, but at least I captured that. So um, I just wanted to make sure that this history just doesn't disappear with the, the uh, disappearance of death of people of that of those generations. So I hope I've succeeded and that readers who read my book will find it useful um, and help them connect better with um, the country that their parents or, great, or grandparents came from. Well, I, I can tell you um, how much appreciation I have. I mean, as, as I'm getting more into this work, I'm so grateful that there are people like you that exist that have documented, that have told the stories, because as far as I was concerned for many years, like Vietnam didn't happen until after 1976 to me. 
right? Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> when I was a kid, I always thought that history only ha- started to begin when I was born. I mean, that's how, you know, <laughs> yeah. silly, yeah. you know, silly young boys, I mean, young kids think, and you kind of get locked into this reality that your mom and dad, after leaving the country, was the sort of, that's when history for us began, uh, maybe shortly before that, there were these years that they were in the military in Vietnam. But for the most part, we don't, they don't even know what happened in the 19th century in Vietnam. Our parents no. don't know. Yeah. No. And then the articulation, the ability to articulate it in a very, um, I, I want to say, Western format of communication um, is so important too, because I think that your book, uh, the mountain sing, um, mm-hmm. these kinds of books, um, ex- exist. So we, uh, will have strength in our identity to know that we are not just since 1976, <laughs> we, we have hundreds and hundreds of years of people, uh, of culture, generations of rich, vast, uh, history that right. uh, exists. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that can, help, you know, Vietnamese who don't know much about this. So, you know, they came from a very, from a great culture with great traditions. And uh, so um, I think that that can help reinforce their identity and maybe make them feel proud uh, of the heritage that that they have. You know, it's it's something to be proud of. And, um, And the more you know about it, the more pride you can derive from it. It has a lot of flaws and weaknesses, but on the whole, there are a lot of things that are great about it. The love of literature, education, you know, poetry, um, music, uh, family loyalty, um, things like that. I think that there are values that endure. And it's certainly, I think, I, I hope, and I think they still enjoy even in Vietnam. You, you and Viet Thanh Nguyen, um, I watched that um, that talk. I think it was some at, at a university somewhere in Claremont or Laverne or something like that. Yeah. Um, and the two of you were 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 talking and, and making jokes about how pain uh, allows you and him to to be writers, and, and, and you can cultivate. Yeah you're allowed to do this work because of that. And you wouldn't remove it. You wouldn't if under any circumstances because it fuels your, your, you know, and it never goes away. And shame for me has always been existing. And I don't think I can ever get rid of it. Shame of being a Vietnamese person. Um, Because growing up in the eighties, it was like, you know, I was a gook. I was kids in the neighborhood, black kids, white kids, Mexican kids. We were gooks, we were zipper heads, we were, you know, Didi Mao, Didi Mao. That was what they, that's how they made fun of us. And these aren't things that I get to talk much about um, because it's Full Metal Jacket, it's Rambo, it's all of these films that I grew up in the thick of that. And, you know, I've never really been able to to voice it up until this podcast now now that I'm doing it. So I'm finding out that there's this like this internal shame that it's not going to go away. And it's okay because it drives my, motivates me to to replenish uh, the the future generations with a sense of pride and, you know, not to fall into the same pitfalls of of culture that, you know, I turned it off for many years and 
mm-hmm. wanted to, and then only dated white women because of my, my, my desire, my burning desire to not be, you know, mm-hmm. attached to the Vietnamese culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, doing this work really relieves me, uh, the relieves the pain of that shame. And, you know, it's a, it's a thing that like, I, I really identified with, with you and Viet when you guys were talking about, uh, you know, certain things drive us. And, and this is one thing that drives me. So knowing the details of your life um, as, as a person who is Vietnamese uh, brings so much relief to, to mm-hmm. me on an emotional level. That's good. You know, uh, here listening to you talk, I realized that I was never subjected to what yeah. you were subjected to in the United States. I came, you know, I, I went to Georgetown. Yeah. Uh, so I avoided all of that childhood trauma that you went through. And, and um, that's why I guess I'm so comfortable in my skin because of that, because uh, I came already formed. I knew my background. I was proud of my family heritage. And uh, um, so I, fortunately, I avoided what you and a lot of young kids who came and had to go through those traumas of childhood. I avoided all that. My generation endured the traumas of war. Right. And of being displaced. But your generation, you came here and you felt like you were not accepted, you were rejected, you were vilified, made fun of. And, um, but your trauma is very deeply psychological, I think. Somebody like Viet is really, you um, must be a, um, how shall we say, a model. Total. But also, it is also reassuring, I guess, to Vietnamese. To have Fearless, yeah. yeah. And we have him and we have Ocean Vuong. Yes. Yeah. We have Nguyen, the film director, all yes. these young thinkers that, uh, that really, yes. um, and each yeah, of them all the, to... all the people who appeared on your program, uh, you know, like Doan, who yes. I met on Sunday. And I think that um, Vietnamese Americans are getting recognized, you know, and I think yes. over time it will just get better. And I won't stop. I'm going to, this is my lifelong, um, goal and mission to to put the Vietnamese um, on the map globally because you know why not because you know I think that we it's our time and it's it's a I think it's a good thing that uh, Vietnamese around the world um, realize that we are one people and um, there's a lot of beauty in, in in our collective experience yeah I think what you're doing is great because you feature all these Vietnamese with uh uh, great achievements that otherwise other people would not have heard of because they're not celebrities, but they've done great things, you know, very laudable, wonderful things. So I really enjoyed, you know, f- discovering them myself. And uh, yeah, so thank you for doing this. I think you're doing a, a great service to the Vietnamese community. Thank you. I wish my uh, reasons for doing it was a little bit more grand and a little bit more, uh, <laughs> more uh, not not so, uh, you know, rooted in, in shame. But I guess, however, we we uh, get there, we get there. Um, whatever fuel we need to, to get to where we need to go, we, you know, on the record, it's just it is the way it is. And, um, you know, mm-hmm. that, that's mm-hmm. history.
Yeah. Well, that's a good motivation. Otherwise, you might just be sitting in front of a TV and watching <laughs> some, some uh, streaming service. So, well, anyway, I thank you for thank having you. me and I congratulate you on what you're doing, like, you know, getting the Vietnamese community to know about all these Vietnamese who have done great things. So I think that's thank really you, a, a worthwhile project. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I value your time so much and appreciate it. My pressure. And uh, yeah, keep on going. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trinh. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.